Sorry that this is a rerun, but it's a really good one. Daniel Negreanu is a fascinating human being, whether you know about poker or whether you don't know about poker. He is uh, a person who is constantly challenging himself and then challenging us. And Daniel is online, engaging with people all the time, whether you agree with him on stuff, whether you disagree with him on stuff. There's no doubt we're talking about a fierce intellect. We're talking about someone who's arguably the best whoever lived at the thing that he does. And I always find value in that. So uh, I'll have a new episode for you soon. But today, right now, Daniel Negreanu. All right, this will be one hour. I'll get you out of here. Hey, do you still talk about Choice Center? Is that still a yeah, part anything, of your life? Yeah, anything and everything is on the table. Okay, good. I don't really have anything to hide. You know, no, I know. I just mm-hmm. I just wanted to know because it may come up. No, it's a very cool thing to talk about. Yeah, sure. just because I am interested in like the change. Have you ever done any of those courses, anything like that? Oh, yeah. Um, D- Dave and I are executive producers of the Tony Robbins documentary. That's right. I watched it. You know, there's a lot of similarities. Did you do his thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a big okay. Tony Robbins. So it's very, very similar. Uh, what he does is he does it in a room of like 2,500 people, whereas Choice is more like you got 80 to 100 people. So there's a lot more, I think it's a little more intimate. Yeah. I, get, get I mean, deeper. it depends. There are different experiences with, yeah. you know, there are different experiences that you can have with Tony's thing. For me, and I've talked about this on here before, I read Awaken the Giant Within and that changed. I really was able to shift my life as a result mm-hmm. of reading it. Yeah. That said, I think those things, for individuals who need them, they're amazing. They're, and you can make huge strides. And I know that you changed for the better as a human. So, like, as I know, yeah. I got I a ton out of it. I look at it a little differently in that, like, I think that I don't, I don't look at it as need. I think that, like, anybody who goes probably is going to get something out of it. Whether, like, no matter how well off you are and how good your life is, like, everyone's going to get something. Well, it depends how you define need. Yeah, need is It depends is like, how you yeah, define yeah. need, right? right? Like, um... I do think that these things at certain points and inflection points can make a gigantic difference. Of oh, course, they can yes. add, they no can question. be um, additive in smaller ways, yeah. but sometimes they can be oh, transformative. Yeah. Right. No, I'm saying at the very least, at the very least, you'll go there and you'll be like, okay, I got a few things. At the very best, it's going to completely transform the way that you view your life and the trajectory of your life. Uh, hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, that was Daniel talking about being a guest on The Moment and how <laughs> how much that can really shift everything <laughs> for you. Yeah. Um, so my guest today is Daniel Legrano, who is, um, you know, you can make the argument, the best poker player in the world and um, who has won over $30 million in tournaments, has won bracelets uh, anywhere you can win them, is a poker a Hall of Famer. And uh, is somebody I've known for a long time. Not well, but we've known each other for a long time and been aware and kept track of one another for a long time. So, Daniel, thank you for uh, being here, man. I'm glad we could finally make it happen. And we were talking about something that we'll get to later, which is uh, the Choice Center, which is some a self-help sort of an institution that da- Daniel uh, threw himself into. And uh, it became a little bit of a lightning rod for a while for you out there. In the poker world, I think. Yeah, because poker players in general are pretty skeptical about any and everything, right? So they hear this thing. A lot of people go through it. They have an, a great experience, like life-transforming experience for a lot of people. Um, but then you get people who haven't done it. Then they go on the internet and they read some stuff and say, oh, it's actually bad. It's terrible. It's a scam or whatever. I'm like, how could it be if like 99% of the people I, I know went – Maybe 94% is probably more accurate. Went, actually had good experiences, right? So I look at it this way. If I'm going to take advice from somebody about whether something works, like say a movie, right? If you told me, oh, don't see this movie, and you only watch the first 10 minutes, while other people I know watched the entire movie and said it was great, well, I'm going to take the people's you know, you know, know, word that actually saw the film and saw it through. Yeah, sure. And I, I'm, I fall somewhere 
I, I too bring a healthy, as someone who's written about con men my whole life, like, and studied that shit, I bring a healthy skepticism to all this stuff. But then I do, because like, uh, as we've talked about, Tony Robbins work has really helped me. I practice transcendental meditation in the same way that people sometimes say the choice center has qualities that are similar to cults. And you know, it doesn't, you say it doesn't. Some people think transcendental meditation has those things. And I know it doesn't because I have this yeah. firsthand experience as you're saying, I have this firsthand experience with it. I was going to get to this later, but, but I do, I, I noticed in you and what people said about you is that early on in your career, as we all are, when we're young, I think people had, if there are any questions people had about you, there were these little character questions and they've gone away largely since you did this stuff. So, you know, I, I mean, you know, you and I had a little issue years oh, ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you wouldn't, which, uh, and I know that since then, like, I know that that wouldn't have happened yeah. in a life after this. Yeah, I would say the biggest thing is I don't think that stuff goes away, right? These are parts of your personality that are always there. The biggest difference is you're more self-aware of when it's happening so you can shift. So there are going to be moments where I'm arrogant, condescending, righteous, all those things. That doesn't go away. The difference now is I realize and I'm like, yeah, I'm being a jerk right now. Okay, so let's shift. What do I want to be? Yes. Okay, I want to be more powerful, compassionate, understanding, connected with people. Yes. And I can actually, because of the skills that I've learned, shift into that. But you reacted a few. I mean, the thing that happened a few years again, I wasn't going to get into this, but now we're here and then we'll go all the way back. But because the, the thing that happened years ago was you were on my show, my yeah. first TV show, Tilt. Yeah. We, the show was about cheating. And then y you knew it, I knew it. And then when it came out and people in the poker community were ripping it, you publicly said you didn't know the show was about cheating. Yeah, no, I definitely take, I wish I would have worded that better. I would have handled that better. And actually, I would have handled the whole situation. Yeah, you better. wouldn't, you reacted actually, out of fear then well, and you the wouldn't anymore. Is, and the truth is, my, it was my lack of understanding, right? So... I've learned over the years, like what it, what it takes to get something more mainstream. Back then, I'm like a poker purist, you know, hey, this isn't pure poker. This has got the cheating element. Why are they doing this? But realizing is like to make things mainstream, you have to change things and stuff. You have to make it exciting for people. Yes. And regular poker show may not be all that exciting. So the cheating element was important, right? For the poker community, they, you know, I think a lot of them were like, yes. hey, this sheds us in a bad light because it's all about cheating. Right. Yes. But no, the thing that hurt, that thing that hurt me then yeah. was you, when you were there, you knew what we were doing. And right. then afterwards you said you didn't. And I don't think you would ever, I can yeah. tell you immediately wrote me after that. And you were like, yeah. Hey, but that's out of fear. I know we all react out of fear at a certain time in our lives. And it was a, um, a moment in the poker boom that I guess everybody felt like we have to protect this. Yeah, it was basically like, yeah. So I, I was aware that was cheating. Like I didn't, I wasn't sure of the whole story arc. So would yeah, yeah, there. sure. And then the reaction we got from the community, a lot of people were like, hey man, you know. And again, like I said, I just didn't have a deeper understanding of what it takes to get a show to be mainstream, yes. right? So a regular poker show where these guys just play and blah, blah. I mean, unlikely ESPN would have wanted something like that. Yes. Yeah, so, oh yeah. And, and, and I mean, the bigger point for me anyway is uh, what I always felt when I was around you was that you were one of the most remarkable and special pe people I've come across in the world of poker because of your ability to understand a situation, understand people and their motivations. I think to me, it seems like you always were able to do that, whether you could act upon it in the right ways or not. Sure. Yeah. Well, part of that comes from this part of what I learned when I went through the course is part of it. My mom was very judgmental. Right. She would see like another kid that's five years old running, go get my more ice cream. And my mom would be like, no, 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 no. You're fat enough. Put the ice cream down. <laughs> right. Like awesome. not even her kid. Right. So part of that, I think, translated in the sense that it's a blessing and a curse because I've always been able to sort of pick people apart, if you will. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What's what's right about them? What's wrong about them? And that really translates well to the poker table. The danger with it is if you live your life like that, you don't you're not really fair to people. You don't really give people a fair shake.
Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. You mean if you, if you don't first process it and and recognize what you're doing? If I'm judging without compassion, like, for example, I've, I, one of the things I learned when I went through it is like, so now what I do is to say I hate somebody. I can't stand this person. What a jerk they are or whatever. I do this like little sort of thing where I picture them as a two-year-old, right, when they were two years old and realize when they were two – they were kids. They were not evil. They were not awful. They were not arrogant. Right. They were not jerks, right? So some things must have happened in their life that I don't know or I don't understand that made them this way. And that allows me to shift out of like, I hate this. It doesn't mean I like them anymore, but I'm like, at least I can be compassionate. It gives you a sense of understanding. Yeah, like what still, must You can still protect yourself from getting hurt. Sure. But not from a place of uh, raw emotion. Yeah, no, I can look at it differently and understand that like, this person has been through stuff. I don't know what it was like to live like them. And, you know, they weren't born that way. So, okay, so this goes back to like where I wanted to start, which, which is, look, you were born with a series of innate talents that most people aren't born with. And I'm sure you, and then you developed them. I have a couple of questions that are all sort of like tied together, but like, when did you realize you had a, a series of special talents? So first of all, I think everybody has these talents. It's a question of whether they can tap into them, right? So like when a baby is born, it can look at its mother's eyes and face and tell if its mother's, if its mother's happy or angry or sad. Like we have that innate ability, right? As we age, as we get older, we stop, we stop trusting in that at all. And we don't believe in that body language as much anymore. Well, I remember being five years old and we were walking in a mall with my mother and uh, there was this couple that was holding hands and there was another guy sitting, standing next to her. And I said, mommy, mommy, she likes that one, not that one. And you're like, no, 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 they're married. That's just the friend. And we found out two months later that she was sleeping with that guy, right? Because right. I saw something that I trusted. And did your mother get a huge kick out of that aspect of your yes. life? So is that part of what made you sort of grow that side of yourself that you got rewarded for it somehow? I don't know. if I don't know. They, they laughed about it. They thought it was pretty funny. But I always remember being young. And when I would go to the mall or be around people, I would watch people. And I would just basically, and I do this sometimes when I practice poker. I will actually go sit on a bench and I'll watch people walk by. And I'll watch how they're walking. Are they hunched over? Are they walking? proudly, you know, and then sort of make decisions in my mind about like what, how they would play poker or how they think about the world. You still do that? And you consider that practice, you consider that in your head, that's a form of training. Sure. People watching. Yeah. Not actually like playing poker, but just in general, getting a sense for how people look when they're scared, how people look when they're happy, when they're, you know, when they're, when they're, you know, confident. You can tell, like if you, if you do this, you walk, you sit down on a bench in a mall, you watch how somebody walks. If they're walking briskly and forcefully, whatever, that's a confident man. Typically, if you see somebody with their shoulders, you know, kind of crouch their head down, not looking up their face drooped. It's like they're, they're afraid of something. They're just, they're afraid of being around public. And there's a lot you can gain, gain from that in terms of how to read people. And you think about that, con- your con- constantly, if you go through an airport, you're thinking about this stuff or you're noting it, or is it a habit or is it just now, yeah, now at an unconscious? Sort I do it one of two way. ways. Typically I just do it because it's, you know, fun and I like watching people and like looking at yeah. people and thinking about what their life was like. But when I want to practice for poker or something like that, I find, you know, a lot of the guys crunch the numbers and do the math stuff. Well, that's not my for. I mean, I'm good at that. Not maybe as good as they are, but the, this, the edge I have is the ability to understand how people think and how they perceive me. Self-awareness, probably the most valuable asset as a poker player you mean knowing what you're really reacting to self when you say self-awareness i'm understanding uh what you're putting out understanding why you're doing what you're doing mostly understanding how people perceive you right so if let's say you're playing poker right and i'm playing against you and then in my mind i know like if i know that you think that i bluff a lot well now i can create a strategy where i don't bluff you anymore but it's on me to understand how you think of me. Sure, a table, so, sort, but but a table image is um sort of like a first level thing that people who want to get serious about poker start to understand, right? Your uh, ability to do that is a uh, way 
higher level, you're obviously thinking on many different gradations of it, aren't you? Yeah. Well, the first thing you do is like, well, with poker is like, the, it's step one. Level one thinking is, what do I have? What are my cards, right? And then the second level thinking is like, what do they have? You know, what do I think that person has? The third level is, what do they, they think, think I, I have? have. Yeah. And that goes to level seven and eight and eight where, you know, I've been playing with Falivey. We played so much. It's like, what does he think that I think that he thinks that I think he yeah. thinks it's I It's almost like a cartoon. Right it's almost yeah. like a Roadrunner cartoon. Yeah, exactly. It gets to uh, that point. But so you say everyone was born with some version of this, but most of us somehow that thing doesn't, you know, once we learn to talk or we stop, you know, maybe the moms stop looking at us as attentively. So we're not watching them as much or, or however it happens. But for you, you grew it somehow. Like, so tying into this is at what age did you know you were smarter than most of your teachers, even though you were doing badly in school and getting in trouble? When did you know I'm yeah. smarter than these teachers? Well, I mean, I don't know that I actually was, but I know there was a point where I thought I was. Yeah, but you and were. Daniel, life's proven that you were. So so it was around 10th, 11th grade when I saw a math teacher, you know, doing a problem on the board and I looked at the way he was doing it. And I go, there's a way much, there's a much easier way to do this, you know? And then part of me was like, I was cocky. I was playing poker at the time. I was making, you know, probably $45, $50 an hour. And I'm thinking this guy, I make more money than this guy. And I'm 18. Right. Why would I listen well, yeah, to him? That's the arrogant part yes. that we're all not, that you're not <laughs> yeah. right about to think that yeah. the money thing makes you yeah. better. Right. But I'm more saying like when they were judging you harshly, was there a time when you believed them that you were like less than, and then a time when you realized, no, 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 I don't, when you were, you know, I don't believe them anymore. I was blessed in one area and I had parents that loved me and supported me no matter what. I have a letter in on my, on my, on the front of my house where my mom got it for me was when I was 10 years old. And it's from the principal saying to the effect of something, the effect of, we will not tolerate Daniel's this poor is manners and behavior. Know. And then he, he says, and in light of your own position to always support him, we may have to just remove him from school. So <laughs> point being is like, I always had confidence because I had my brother who had my back. He was a big dude, my parents who had my back. So I never felt small. I mean, I was a small guy. I was the shortest in school up until like the seventh or eighth grade, but I never actually felt inferior or small. And you never felt like the judgment of the people in authority positions who would give you shit for acting out or being bored in cl class. It didn't land on you somehow. No, I was able to manipulate them in such a way where they typically liked me anyway. So, like right. I, one class, I would bring a pillow. And I would just go sleep in the back. <laughs> and what do you think it was that was, because most people, so it was your parents and I had a similar situation. I had a hard time in elementary school also uh, being bored or having like uh, ADHD and there's being this big gulf between when I was interested in something uh, and when I wasn't. And so for you, you were able to know, but I'll say for me at times, and I had this incredibly supportive, these incredibly supportive parents, but there were still times that I would get down about it because I would wonder about this split between what I knew my capability must be and then the results that I was producing, which were poor. And it drove me a little bit crazy at, at times. You were not bothered by it. That didn't happen to me then in my life. It, I would say that the phase in my life where I started to look back and go, what a waste was I wasn't in school. I was like early 20s, like 21 years old, 22. And I'm like, I'm staying in my, I live with my parents. I'm not going to school. All I do is play poker. I'm not really making a lot of money at it. And I'm thinking like, what am I doing? Like, what am I going to do next? And, you know, that was one morning where I woke up and said, okay, well, I guess I'm a professional poker player. And if that's going to be the case, I might as well get serious about it and like do this right so that I create a life for myself. But there was probably self-doubt happened then. And then in my first few trips to Las Vegas, where I walked in with, a, you know, my chest puffed out, like, oh, I'm going to bust all these people, right? And it didn't work out that way. Well, I want to get to that. I want to get to um, when you busted out and what, what, how you processed that information and what made you come back. But let's go just a hair slower because 
it's odd, right? I, t- I talk to people who are super achievers in all sorts of areas, but in most of these areas, there's no ultimate test. They're, they're not the same kind of competitions. You know, there have been times when you are the single best poker player in the world and there's no sort of like uh, single best tournament poker player in the world. And there's no doubt it. you won $15 million the year before this and beating anybody by almost doubling, right? The next guy made seven, I think. And so I do want to understand the path to getting to be the best in the world at something because it's it's such a rare uh it's such a rare thing so i want to go a little bit more slowly because sometimes i think we all wonder about how much is planned and how much happens so i mean how much of it do you think like when did you start having big dreams how specific were those i know i read once when you were four you decided you were going to be rich (laughs) but when did 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 you start kind of like manifesting all this and saying to yourself i'm I'm going to be really exceptional. Well, the truth is, it sort of, it didn't happen the way that it would for me now in terms of me thinking ahead to my, like, what's my vision for my life? What do I want to create? That's how I would do things now. When back then, it just came strictly from passion because I loved playing so much that I wanted to spend all my time doing it because I love the challenge. I love the, I I would have loved to have been a hockey player or a basketball player, but I'm five, nine, you know, I was like a buck 40. It wasn't going to happen. I was too big to be a jockey, too short to be anything, you know. A value right. in the sporting world. So poker w- challenged me in those ways. And I just loved playing. I loved learning about it. I loved the game. And, you know, I read that book. Um, I think it was called Malcolm Gladwell, Freaking Up. Uh, the one that talked about the 10,000 hours. Oh, Outliers. Yeah, pardon right. me. Yeah, talks me about too. the 10,000 hour books. rule or whatever. And I, I essentially did that in my teens where I just put in a ton of time. So by the time I was, you know, 22, 23 years old, I already had tons of experience. Right. I wasn't this rookie who just right. came so in. So you lame. loved it. You were incredibly passionate about it. But many people are really passionate about poker, but they don't have the ambition or the drive. Like, I love playing poker. I played many hours of it. And obviously, Dave and I wrote rounders out of it, meaning I took that passion and combined it with this bigger passion that I had for yeah. telling these kinds of stories. But you must have had a something burning in you that made you leave Canada. Like, how old were you when you first realized, not only do I love this, but I might be very I might be beginning to be very good at, were you in high school? Were you in? Well, by then, I mean, really, I, I already started, I, I was, it was high school, but really the, the main moments where I actually made the decision to go big was when I said, okay, this Toronto thing is cool, but I don't want to be like these other guys who just, you know, grind it out in the 10, 20 games and make 40, 50,000 a year or whatever it is that they were making. I'm like, I want to go big. I want to make it big. I want to go face off against the best and I want to beat the best. So that's when, you know, Vegas happened. And that's when I realized like that this is where I wanted to end up. I, w- I wanted to be in the mecca of poker. I wanted to be among the best. And I knew that, you know, Toronto, I was a big fish in a small pond, essentially. And the only way to test myself was to go right up against them in Las Vegas. And so you had that clear sense. And you're how old at this time? Like, what year is this? Do you this think? was, tw- I was 22, 23 What was the old. first year you took a trip where you said, I'm going, I'm moving? Uh, I was, I was 21, 22, I think it was 21 or 22. Went to Vegas for the very first time with $3,000 and 24 hours later, I had a lot of free time on my hands. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. three, you lost all three grand in yeah. 24 hours. And I remember the moment. It was really a very important moment in my career because I yeah. remember it was seven. It was like 4 a.m. And we were playing seven-handed with a bunch of the locals or whatever. What game were you playing? It was Limit Hold'em. It was 10, 20, or 24. I don't remember exactly. But anyway, I um, I lost my money and I went to the bathroom to wash my hands and get my, you know, pu- you know, just get clear. Get yourself together. So I walked back out of the bathroom. Maybe four minutes later, they're all gone. And I'm oh. like, holy sh- I was the sucker. 
They built like, the game around yeah, you. Yeah, it was the first time in my life I'm like, oh my God, I was the sucker. They were playing because of me. And that really rubbed me the wrong way. That made me feel salty. And I was so determined to go back home, rebuild my bankroll. And I remembered every single one of those people's faces. You did? Every one of them. And one of them, I couldn't stand this guy. It was a guy wearing a Hawaiian shirt, older guy. He would just re-raise me all the time and push me around when I'd like to be the bull. And I remember him so vividly. And later in my life, as I got to play him, I, re- I learned to like respect this man and love this guy. Like, oh, really? Once I got it, you know, like I just got it. He's just good. You know, right, yeah, there's no so reason to hate him. Ripped you apart. Yeah, no, he's just such a great guy. He ended up being like in my early stages in Vegas, kind of a role model for me in terms of how to do this the right way. Was he a guy who continued to be a, uh, a local professional? Yeah, it was, his name was Hawaiian Bill. Just a regular, really nice guy. But like I said, you know, he was the guy that was beating me out of my money. So at the time, I'm like, screw this dude. So you found <laughs> something to be angry about, basically. Instead of getting down, I think it's really interesting because we all have these losses in life, but you didn't beat yourself up. You were able to, you walked it. Cause like a lot of people would walk out of that bathroom and be gutted, right? Yeah. They'd be well, broken. It's feedback. The, it's like, I looked at it like it's feedback. Even then? Yeah. There, this how feedback, do you think you knew well, how to essentially, do that It's feedback. I'm like, they're saying I suck. They're playing because of me. So they think I suck. And I'm like, uh-uh, I do not suck. I'm good at this game and I'm going to be better than all of them. And so what did you decide to go work on? Did you say to yourself, I'm going to work on certain aspects of my game then? Or just, I'm going to go build my bankroll and take another shot at it? Well, I realized, as I said, I was a big fish in a small pond in Toronto where I got to be the bully nonstop. I could push people around, you know, manipulate them, do what I wanted, right? I went to Vegas and they're like, oh, come on. We've seen hometown heroes come and go. They're a dime a dozen, right? So that whole bull in a china shop strategy that I had wasn't going to work. I needed to have some texture. I needed to be more careful. I needed to, you know, we talked about this a little earlier, build my table image so that I could get away with the things that I like to do. Because it was very, it was very easy for them to to play against me because they knew what I was going to do. Push, 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 aggressive, aggressive, aggressive. It's like, okay, he's, you know, it's simple. Sure, you're a kid. You're using a strategy yeah. that scares people sure. at home. Like in Toronto, they didn't know how to deal with that strategy. But in Vegas, they've seen it a million times Yeah, they'll before. wait you out in Vegas. They'll, yeah, they'll, they'll like, show okay. you, like, they'll, they'll they show you back. a hand. Yeah, they'll show you a hand. I mean, and then they'll show you a hand. Yeah. Let's talk about the New Yorker. The other day, somebody wrote me to say, I'm just writing to tell you that your New Yorker read was the best podcast commercial I'd ever heard. And I know the reason is that, like, I just would, as I say, talk about the New Yorker anytime and to anyone. So when I'm talking about the New Yorker, it does not feel like a read or a commercial. It feels like I'm just telling you one of the ways in which I learn about the world. I engage with the world. And uh, something else people ask me all the time is they're like, you know, with all that I do, how I still have time to read. Well, the, the New Yorker demands that you take the time if you want to be a person who knows what's going on and is prepared to uh, deal with that with what's going on in the world. Look, online and in print, The New Yorker covers a full range of topics, politics, news, international affairs, climate change, environment, pop culture, the arts, fiction, food, humor, cartoons. There's great writing. Look, when you start an article in The New Yorker, you finish it. Whether it's on a subject you'd never thought about before, it doesn't even matter. They're the best writers around. I mean, Emily Nussbaum is a TV critic. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning critic. I mean, there are people like uh, John Cassidy, who covers politics and economics. Uh, Evan Osnos, another Pulitzer Prize finalist. These are incredible writers, uh, the best on the scene. And, and look, you can get 12 weeks for just six bucks. It's regularly 12, plus the New Yorker tote bag. Home delivery, the print edition each week. 
unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day, access to our apps, online archive, crossword puzzle, and more. Get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6 plus the exclusive tote. Go to newyorker.com slash moment. Listeners save 50% when they enter moment. Listeners save 50% when they enter moment. I stumbled on the 50% there the first time. Don't want you to miss it. What let you know you could come back and be better than that? What made you know you had the tools? Well, I just had an inner confidence. And like I said, a lot of it has to do with upbringing and the way that I was raised and like a lot of self-belief. But on top of that, you know, I knew I was learning at a rapid pace. I knew that I wasn't that far off, you know? You I'm mean because like, okay. you could recognize what they were doing after? Like, did you go and think like, so, okay, they're giving me a message. I suck, whatever. Did you then go and try to replay the hands in your head? Oh, and yeah. So what does that work look like for you? The most valuable thing about my growth as a player was like playing a session. And sometimes I would write them down. Sometimes I wouldn't. I'd write down a hand and I'd break down, where did I go wrong here? Uh Instead of like, you know, the victim version where it's like, oh man, I had my aces cracked. Oh, poor me. Right? No, no, no. Let's go a step further and say, well, did I play them right? Did I make all the right moves? And if not, what did I do wrong? And that was, those are the learning from my mistakes. Like I'm a big believer in making mistakes is a good thing. Learning nothing from them isn't. And you even, I'm saying even as a 22 year old, you were you got yourself in the practice of doing that stuff? Sure. And I had friends that were playing at the time. And I would, that was when I, when I started out in, the, in poker, like with Phil Ivey, John Juan and Alan Cunningham, we typically were the only young guys playing, right? And we'd go like to dinner some, at times and we'd talk about hands. And I would run my hands off, you know, I'd run it by these guys. What would you do? Oh, I would do this. I would do this. That's in Vegas though when all you guys Yeah, this was together, by the time, this was like Foxwoods, where we were traveling, you know, right. tournament That's scene. late. I mean, you'd already become. Sure. But a even before that, a real I had, professional. yeah, even before that, I talked some, you know, hands with friends that were not, you know, those guys, like the best in the world necessarily. But I found a lot of value in, in doing that and sort of being able to, because when you're involved in a hand, you think about it your way. But sometimes someone else says, yeah, but what about this? And you're like, whoa, I never thought of that. And so you started doing that even then. Yeah. You were, and what was the, re- what did the rest of your life look like then as a, what kind of per, so you had this real focus here. You were able to like, look at your mistakes, evaluate. And it's very mature for a young person, right? For a 21 year old to be able to go, oh, um, I didn't get unlucky. I can't blame them. They weren't colluding. Yeah. I was worse than them. And now I'm going to figure out how to get better. That shows a lot of maturity. Did you, what did the other areas of your life look like, or was this a single-minded? Pursuit? So the truth is, and I'm I, I, like, if I look back, and I, you know, someone, I, if I met somebody who's 18 years old, and they said they want to do what I did, I would actually recommend they don't, because I sacrificed. You know, it worked out. It worked out for me, but for most people, it's not going to. But I sacrificed going to college. I sacrificed being around people. I wasn't chasing girls. I was like, all I did was sleep, eat, and breathe poker. Like I would, you know, like I would have these late, you know, these late night walks where I'd lose money and I sort of question what I'm doing. And I wake up the next morning charged, ready to go. Shower straight to the poker. How room. would you rebuild a bankroll? Would you get borrow money from people? Uh, yeah, often I would borrow. Like I'd have friends in Toronto. So, so you'd borrow a couple hundred. So you knew in Toronto a couple hundred you could turn into thousands quickly? Yeah, I would buy five. I would borrow 500 or a thousand from a friend. And, uh, you know, they, and then I would literally, if I did, if I owed somebody $500, I was in the poker room playing poker. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't doing anything until I had the money to pay them back. Right. You were like, yeah. listen, I'm using, you knew it was a business somehow. Like you understood. Well, I knew that my, my word mattered and my credit mattered. And if I screwed people over, like that's, it, you know, in the, I learned very early on in that world. If you do that, you know, the word gets out. So it was very important to me to make sure that I hit deadlines and I, you know, I paid people when I said I would and I was very honest about it. And so you were basically, you would wake up and do, and just go to the 
poker. Yeah. Typically yeah. back then when I was a teenager, I was sleeping the days away and I was waking up at like 5 p.m., so 6 p.m. wake up at 5 and there go probably to... probably two months in a row I didn't see any sun. Were you going to Indian casinos to play? No, there was a, there was a private club called Check and Raise in Toronto. You know, it was an underground club yeah. uh, that they had going and there was, you know, two, three games going. Was in, this like know? in 95, 90, yeah, probably around like, there? Yeah, mid-90s. So like when I was playing in the Mayfair Club, basically. Yeah, like you 94, 95, something like that. Yes. Yeah, and I would go there and play and, uh, you know, it would... I would, it was basically like I was doing that for two months, two straight months and not seeing any sun, not doing anything outside of that, you know, except for maybe like, you know, betting sports a little bit. And were you reading poker magazine? Were you reading like card player? I was reading card player a little bit and, you know, some books here and there, but mostly the, the vast majority of my, like my education came playing at the table. And really the best thing that, the, the thing that I did was I would watch a guy who I knew was a winning player. Yes. And I'd watch, I'd study him for like a whole week and just be like, what is this guy doing that's working, right? And how can I incorporate what's working into my game? And I would go on to the next guy. So once I figured out, okay, I got all his strengths and I know a couple of his weaknesses. Well, what about this guy? What does he do differently? So you have some players who take the conservative approach. You have others who take the aggressive approach, right? So I was like, what is the value of these two things? Let's put them together. Yeah, I want to even go more granular into that idea. You know, you often hear people talk about, when I, even when I'm not in a hand, I'm watching. So you would watch for a week. So let's say we're saying, I decide I'm going to, I'm going to watch you. You would sit and you would, as the hand's going on, you're playing your own hand. When you're out of a hand, you're keeping track of when this person would bet, how they would win a pot, when they would lose a pot. You're really sort of like able to hyper-focus on that person. I take it a step further. Tell me. What I actually did was I became that person for a week. I wanted to think that my mind was like there. So the way they stacked their chips, I stacked my chips the same way. The way they put their chips in the pot, I did the same thing. So I was mimicking, mimicking them. I was trying to like get into their head in every way, like almost like character development, like our oh, acting. It's it was what like, Tony Robbins talks about modeling people. Yeah, you were so modeling Totally. I was like, I was doing everything that he did. If he, you know, he, he would eat at a certain time, I would, I would, you know, do that. If he would, you know, not be on his phone, I wouldn't be. Or what, if he was talking to the table, I would just basically try to, you know, think about how is this person thinking and, and acting the, and, and just basically trying to copy them that in takes every way. a tremendous amount of patience as well as like focus and it commitment. didn't feel like i needed patience because it was fun like because i typically admired them you know a little bit yeah because i would look at this guy and i'm like this guy's a hustler man he he goes around town he wins money he's doing it up you know i want to be like him for this week <laughs> and right then, and would you did you do that when you were a pool player were you doing it at the pool table too or it, was that the first, because when you say hustler, immediately I'm thinking about the fact that you played, spent a lot yeah. of time in pool halls first. So did that start where you were modeling pool players or did it just start with poker? There were times where there's, I mean, this guy, one of the best players in our club's name was Chris Russell. He was very good. And, pool. Yeah. Yeah. And, he, and I would, he was like, he saw me doing it. I would sit by their table and watch for like eight hours when he was playing a match against somebody. And I remember one, one moment, because we weren't really friendly or anything. He comes up to me, he's like, did you learn anything, kid? <laughs> and I'm like. Yeah. <laughs> like I learned a lot. I learned A, that it's harder to actually do what I'm seeing, but I understood the strategy in terms of why he was doing what he was doing. You mean how he was setting up the table, how he was, his, you know, shot selection. So why is he shooting for that ball instead of that ball? You know, why isn't he going for this? Why is he playing conservative here? All that. And would you stuff. end up like with the poker guys that you would follow? Would you end up asking them questions ever? Would they ever, or, or did you feel by just watching you were able to st- to locate and see what they were doing. Yeah, at that time, I didn't feel comfortable enough to go up to these people and be like, hey, man, will you be my mentor? I just, right. they just became my mentors without them knowing it, you know? And I didn't really like, cro- I didn't want to cross any lines or anything like that. Because I mean, they're essentially, I'm playing against them for money. And it's, it's, there was sort of an unwritten rule in poker. It's like, you don't share what you know, you know? And I mean, when I mean Brunson but now it, everybody does it separately yeah. and afterwards, as you were saying, like you and John Jawanda sure. did. And I mean, last night we were in a poker charity tournament and I asked uh, 
a couple of you guys what to do about the fact that we have extra rebuys if we're in it because I was trying to get the strategy. I mean, now it yeah. seems like people will talk strategy more after a game. Totally. Yeah. I mean, like Doyle Brunson wrote the first book on poker, the Super System. Super book. System still. Yeah. Before that, everyone thought that was a really bad idea. They said, you know, you don't share information. Why are you giving away all of our secrets, right? But Doyle had a bigger vision in that, you know, he's going to grow the game that way. And that's part of, the, you know, today it's so much easier to become a good poker player because there's so much information available to you that wasn't back then. So, yes. But I want to I go back to the, the idea of this ambition because I get the passion, but I also know that there was some financial motivation to you. I'm sure now it seems like you know, now you're a wealthy man, so it's I'm I'm sure you look at it all differently. But I guess what did your idea of success look like then, and then yeah. versus how your what your idea of success looks like now? Yeah, I got I got to be completely honest. Never in my life did I care about money. Not today. Now that I have it, and not when I didn't have it. I was like I, before a poker game, I would go to this little you know have a restaurant, have a Caesar salad and a beer, came right. to seven bucks, and I, I had like fifteen hundred in my name. I was leaving twenty. Right. You know, I'm, I'm like, I was yes. tipping like, I was, I was tipping like a millionaire when I had a $2,000 bankroll. I lived as though that I was. So when you talk about sourcing it or manufacturing it, it's like, yes. I already put myself in the place where, you know, it was inevitable that I was going to be successful. So I didn't live from scarcity. I wasn't worried about, oh my God, I can't afford this. I can't afford this. I just, you know, and I, I did go broke plenty of times because of this, but yeah. I always felt I had the confidence that I would replenish it and I'd be okay. So I really never... I didn't have any sort of financial goals at the time. But what I just did wanted success to be, look like? What did you want to be? Success, Doyle Brunson? Success like, did, looked like to me being able to play in the highest stakes cash games in the world and being a winner. Being able to sit with Chip, Chip Reese and Doyle Brunson. Yes. You know, that was the ultimate goal for me. Winning the World Series of Poker main event. Those were what I looked at as successes. Not because of the money. And I really believe that strongly that when people chase something because of the money. I agree completely. It doesn't work. You're, you're, you're not going to be successful. I, I had zero financial goals when Dave and I sat down to write rounders. None of it was about, oh, by writing every day, <laughs> we're going to become yeah. wealthy. It just wasn't like the plan. It was like this burning need to tell these stories. But I, I could have told you like, well, what success would look similar, you know, success would look like being able to be on movie sets all the time and they're shooting my thing. And I probably imagined a certain kind of lifestyle that would go with it. Then as you grow up, so now, you know, you've achieved a lot, most of these things. You haven't won the main event World Series bracelet yet, but you've achieved everything else someone could achieve at the game of poker. When you think about what success means, I imagine it's different for you now. <laughs> yeah. So in what way? So success is, you know, because obviously I've had success in my career. Yeah. But now, that's all I was obsessed with when I was young was poker. And now that I'm older, my, you know, my, I've broadened my horizons in terms of what matters to me. And part of what matters to me more now is success. It's like last night, there was a guy, it was a bartender there. And uh, he was down in his, you could just tell he was an angry kid or whatever. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to make a difference for him today. And I'm, you know, I'm going to get him outside of his box. I'm going to have him see the world differently. And I remember I said at one point to him, I said, he, said, he says, I know what he cares. I said, I care about you. And he goes, bullshit. You do not. And I said, no, I really do. You know, I mean, I, I, so the point being is success for me is having, you know, having, you know, meetings with people and like leaving them happier or more likely to su succeed and, and excel and achieve their dreams in their life. A so, sense of contribution. Totally. Yeah. Like to help people like see that these stories they make up about why they can't do this, that or whatever. It's really it's interesting. So I saw, you know, um, I saw online the other day. Uh, a picture, and it was posted on social media, so I'm sure I'm not violating anything of hers, but I saw Jen Harmon posted a picture of her kids in your pool. Mm -hmm. And you guys have been really close friends for a very long time. And I was thinking about how difficult real long friendships in the world of professional card players are. You have examples, little groups, but 
how have you thought about it? How have you sustained these really like loyal friendships with this group of people that you have? Well, I trust, you know, and I've been burned many a times, especially in my early days. I was, you know, staking people, blending money, and I got screwed a lot, but it never turned me off on what really is required to have deep relationships. And that's trust. And Jennifer Harmon, you mentioned, is somebody that I have trusted for a long time. And, you know, we become very, very close. Phil Ivey's another one. And I've, I, have a lot, I have a good core group of people like that in my life. Um, and and the, the thing is, is I did go for a, through about a 10-year period where I didn't really trust people because I didn't trust their motivations. Sure. This is something that I really realized when I, went, when I went through the course at Choice Center is that how much I was pushing people away and that yeah. I had superficial friendships where I could talk to, you know, people for five minutes, but deep friendships. I didn't let people in because my thought process was they want to be, they want to talk to me because of who I am, you know, because of what I can do for them, maybe whether it's money or just stature or anything like that. So I, uh, I just didn't open up. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is what I felt when it's funny, when I very first met you, I didn't feel that in 1998 or whatever. But when I met you, when you came through on tilt, I had this real sense of this kind of like transactional thing that you it was like oh for daniel is going through that period in his life and i'm a little older than you so i could recognize a little it was like oh the, he's in a tr in transactional relationship period yeah. and so that and then that became clear to me after the fact and then i've watched you to me like grow through it but it's interesting you have kept some of these friendships with some of these people because i remember even then hearing a story from jennifer who i've always had a tremendous fondness for of your, that you would demonstrate your loyalty in lots of ways. And I remember clocking it and thinking like, oh, this kid has a heart. It's going to come surface again. It's funny you say that because it's literally probably the biggest thing. When I did this course, right, I went because I thought, oh, maybe I'll get some motivation to get a six pack. What I didn't realize. Choice Center, yeah. Yeah, when I did Choice Center, I didn't realize what I was really getting out of this. And it was what, what the truth was. And the truth was I wanted love. I wanted to experience it. I wanted to open up my heart that I, you know, shut down for, for a long time for various reasons. And I realized throughout it that like I can experience love by giving it, by being outward focused, by helping others, by, you know, raising money for charity or, or a whole myriad of just being a listener, like a good listener as a friend, not just like be so self-focused. And is that something you think about like every day? Now or is day, it I have my bad days. You know, everyone has their bad days where they're so focused. But for the most part, I know if I'm in that place, I know exactly what the cure is. And it's to do something for somebody else. Amazing. Yeah. It's amazing how... If when someone's having a bad day, if someone in your life or you're close to is having a bad day and you just say to them, go do something nice for someone else, it's amazing how that will make them feel better. They don't think that'll be the case. Yeah. But when you go do some kind of service, it does help. Yeah. It makes you feel, I mean, my, my coach at the time, you know, she had me do this little exercise where just essentially got that I'm like a grain of sand in a beach, right? <laughs> or whatever. Just, and then really just like, once I shift out of that, like if you're focusing on helping somebody else, the problems that you have in your life or whatever you've got going on become less relevant, you know? And you're not, you're not as so like, you're not dwelling on them. You're not as focused on that. You're focused on something more positive. So how does this twin with, or how does this go with your desire to be the best in the world and to crush like because it's clear when you're at the table, you do want to crush them all and be the best in the world and have it be an unquestionable thing. So how do you sort of balance this need for this kind of competition with this need to grow your heart? Well, it's very easy, actually, because part of what I do is so part of what I become in poker to some degree is a role model of sorts, right? Yeah. So part of me being able to show people that they can set, you know, dream, declare, deliver, if you will, is me doing it, right? So by me being successful and me winning and me living a life, like being a billboard for what transformational 
life could look like for people. That matters to me. So I want people to look at the way that I live my life and the successes that I have and go, man, he's, you know, he's not one of these young guns anymore, but he can still win. You know, he still hangs with them. He's still successful and he's got a balanced life. And, you know, it ma- I think about it from that perspective. Uh, I think about my life a lot of times as though there were cameras on 24 hours a day, right? Like, cause you think about if you lived your life that way, you know, anytime, if you knew there were cameras on you all the time, you probably may make decisions a little differently. Yeah. And so, so you try to do that. I do. Yeah. But, but also the, the inner, so I get it. So the inner drive is, is not only about winning for Daniel, it's to win as an example. Yeah. And I just, I and love also it for too. yourself, right? Yeah. I mean, it's still, do the endorphins still fire for you mm-hmm. when you find yourself in a spot and you know, you're going to got a chance to win something huge or really important. Totally. Does, I've always got something to prove. It never ends. Like, you know, I've, I've, I've had critics say, oh, he's finished. He's over the hill. You know, these kids are too good. And it's like, they can all criticize me, but they're not, they're not even like one tenth of how critical I am of myself. Well, yeah, I was going to say when I, I know the two plus two forums and all the other places when I, I say, you, you know, you're arguably the best poker player in the world, they're all going to be like, what about Rast? And what about, I mean, they're yeah, all going to yeah. give me tons of shit about it. But over this long period of time, right? Because we're not measuring something. You don't, you don't just measure a point on the, on the graph. Sure, you have yeah. to measure in this long line. And for this long period of time, you're one of the five guys. So men and women, um, who, who are that person? But the question I want to ask when I was talking to Helmuth, who's is a, a pal of mine, um, and I had him on this show, and also he and I talked very recently, hung out for a couple of days in New York. You know, he sort of proudly didn't when GTO became, you know, game theory optimal play became sort of all the rage. He said, like, well, I am now going to, I'm not going to dive in. Like, I'll un- understand it a little bit, but I'm going to do my own thing. You made a different choice. And the way I understand it is the choice you made was to surround yourself with the best thinkers in that area and retrain yourself, almost like Rocky in one of those movies where he's like, oh, I got to now, instead of uh, training with weights, I have to hang upside down Mm -hmm. in a cabin. And like, almost like you decided to strip yourself down and start over. Can you walk through your thought process about that and whether that felt like having humbling yourself to do it. I was just going to use that phrase. It, it requires being, you know, the, the capacity to humble yourself and say, you know what? There's some things that I don't know about this game, but there are some people that do. So I'm going to, I'm going to reach out and get some help in that area. And at the very least, I think Phil makes the, uh, a wrong choice here in the sense that even if you don't plan to play like they play, there's immense value in understanding exactly what and why they're doing what they're doing. So part of what I got from this period in 2010 where I played online against the best players was I fully understood how their minds work. And so then... Another version of the thing you did when you were young. Sure. So then I was able to say, okay, well, where are there chinks in this armor and where are there strategies here that I can exploit? Because now that I understand them, but if I don't have any knowledge on a deeper level of what they're doing, how could I find ways to exploit it? So that was really important for me to improve as a poker player. And I think that he should actually, you know, but he's very resistant because he has been, you know, successful for a very long time. And still, I mean, you know, the big live, I forget the name of that, the thing that they broadcast live for four days when it was fascinating because he and Seidel got to the final table with two of the younger players. So it was two GTO guys and then Seidel and Phil who were playing an older style of poker yeah and i agree with like phil in one sense there's certain specific things that i do at the poker table that if you look at it in a vacuum you know every jto guy can tell you that this is actually incorrect like for example if i'm raising with a pair of fives and someone re-raises me um a lot of time you're supposed to fold i don't i don't fold there i like to see the flop right and so 
I know that in a vacuum, if I just focus on that hand, this is probably what, what's called negative EV, negative right. expectation. Uh, yeah. Right. But, um, but I know that the bigger picture is, is that, you know, I, I have a reason anyway. Well, yeah. If you get it. caught, you're, cause you, you're the whole table numbers. Cause if you get caught with the fives, then you can use that to your advantage later. Or yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I have certain things that I, I choose to do that are, that veer from the norm. Because I know how to exploit those things. And I think it is important because if you just play like everybody else, well, then you're going to do just decent, you know. But yes. if you look at someone like Vanessa Selps, you know, she has a game that's very erratic and very wild, but it works because she forces people into mistakes because of right. the way she plays. I mean, she has a super keen understanding of GTO. She's a math genius. She has yeah. a super understanding of GTO, right? And of non-exploitable play. Uh, way more than I – I mean, I've read a bunch about it, but for me, it's impossible. I mean, I could never play that way because yeah. my – the amount of hours I've read the Ed Miller's book and it's just like, well, I'd have to give up this career. <laughs> you yeah, have to give up my career to figure it out. But when you were doing it, did you then try to play that way for a while so that you could model it in the same way you did when you were younger? Uh, so I did while I was playing online against these guys in the games. And what I noticed was I was translating that to the tournaments and it was actually having a negative effect on me because it was taking me out of my comfort zone and the things that I actually excel at and forcing me into an area that just kind of wasn't my strong suit. So what I ended up doing was going, okay, so I get this. So when I play against these guys online that are all doing this, I got to play like that. Whereas when I'm playing in tournaments, I got to go back to do what I do with a few extra You mean with understanding, balls. Sure. oh, um, in this spot, you have to all, here's why you have to always raise in this spot or sure. you have to raise 70% of the time yeah. and all, all that stuff. So like poker changes, right? In 2004, I, I won everything in 2004 and I didn't bluff. I hardly ever bluffed because people at that time, you know, I was playing a lot of hands. So I, they had a, this, they thought I was bluffing a lot. So I was getting paid. If I played a six, five of spades, and it came six six four, you were and the guy had jacks. It. I'm going to get all his chips. Whereas I noticed when the players got better, like five six years later, that stopped happening. When they weren't paying me anymore, so what that did was it forced me into saying, okay, well, what's opened up for me now? I have to start bluffing, right? I have to start taking more risks and taking more chances, and that's one of the biggest you know shifts I had to make. But this idea of of continuing to evaluate, where does the hunger come from to still do it? A lot the, of people who are, who get to a certain place. Either their ego tells them, well, I don't have to change, or the work of changing feels like it's not worth it for the reward. What do you think keeps you wanting to? I think, well, I mean, first of all, every year I set goals. Like in January, I write uh, 10 career goals and also personal goals in my personal life. And I, I, I'm, I thrive in that arena. Like I love goal setting. If I'm not setting goals or reaching for something or trying to get better at something, then I become stagnant and unhappy. Um, I enjoy the journey, whether I actually reach the goals or not. I typically send, you know, set 10. If I reach three or four, that's really, really good because I set lofty goals. And are some of them like personal improvement goals? Sure. Like I do one that's just career, which is 10 things in career. And then I'll do personal ones like, you know, physical fitness. You know, I'm, I'm actually the fittest I've ever been in my entire life by right. a long stretch. And, uh, but I, but I, I have goals in, in all different areas, reading goals, different types. But of I was going to say, yeah, last night you, you, uh, you, um, you mocked yourself as being, you know, not a, a high school graduate, a high school dropout or something. And I, does that still, uh, as a part of you, still haunted by that? And is that part of why you can say reading goals? Like, is does part of you wonder, I guess, you know, does part of you wonder if you took your exceptional brain power and had applied it to something that was in a more, contributed more directly to society, if you would have been able to sort of do much more in a different yeah. way? I remember a moment when I think I was about 24, 25. And the last seven, eight years, all I'd done is play poker. And I was at a party with normal people, 
right? Yeah. And they were having discussions about politics, about what's going on in the world and about this. And I'm like, uh, check, raise the flop, turn the river. <laughs> I, I like, I could not. And I always considered myself to be intelligent, but I felt so like a fish out of water because I didn't understand yeah. anything that they were saying, really. It was a total different language. So there was that moment where I realized, you know, I need to have some balance here in my life. And it, it's important. And I do have a lot of interests. I'm interested in a wide variety of things. And, um, well, that's what makes you a great Twitter follow for people, yeah. by the way, uh, at Daniel Legrano, uh, Real Kid Poker, right, yeah. on Twitter, is because you will uh, dip your toe into lots of different areas. And you'll, I can tell, you'll find out about stuff and you're curious about stuff. And and so how much time do you spend sort of trying to satisfy your curiosity in areas that are away from the table? A lot. I mean, when I'm home, um, I, I'm, at, I'm not at the point now where I want to practice playing poker every day. I have like, I'd rather play Hearthstone, this video game or something like that, like, or just, you know, have conversations with people. Um, so I, I spend the vast majority of my time learning, you know, reading, just studying stuff. Obviously right now it's an interesting year with a lot of the political things going on. So that's fascinating. And to you me. became a citizen so you could vote, right? That was an American citizen. Yeah. So you could uh, vote in this presidential. Election. Yeah, that was a big part of it. Part of it was like, I, I knew I was going to live in the United States. I said, I might as well, you know. I might as well just take the plunge and become American. And let's just do it in time so I can vote. <laughs> no, I, that's great. Have you voted? Did you vote in a primary? Have you been able to vote yet? Actually, or? I was. I didn't get my citizenship until in between. So I wasn't able to vote in the primary. So the first time you're going to vote in, in America is, is November. in November when you vote for the president. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Because <laughs> I know how you're voting. So yeah. that's why I think it's really awesome. Uh, otherwise, I would try to... Uh, and I'm in Nevada. So yes, it's a swing your, state. Your vote matters. Um. All right, I want to just ask you a couple poker nerd questions for a second. Um, can you just try to talk about what it feels like when you're putting someone on a specific hand? Like what it emotional because you know you have this incredible ability to call out exactly the hand that somebody has, and so just walk us through like what that process feels like for you in a situation at a table well when i'm on when i'm in the zone and i really have a good read on people the feeling i have or the aura that i sense is just dominance like i'm dominant like i own you you are all my children i will <laughs> i will beat you if you need to be beaten i will slap you upside the head and i will tell you what i'm going to do to you and i'm going to do it and when i'm successful and the person shows it or something like that that only gives me more energy and fuels me even more to go ooh i'm feeling it right now right yes so it just it really there's a, it's just like a kind of a dominant in the zone type feeling where i just i just know that i'm not going to get knocked out of this thing it's going to take a lot but what about what does it feel like when you how what is the process by which you know what they have when you're able to really call out a hand on somebody mm -hmm. is it how have they given that away to you usually right so before i mean if i if somebody just sits down very first hand i've never seen them before and they play a hand it's very difficult for me to figure out what the hell they have right so it's based on in the last hour what are, what are they wearing what are they what are they talking about what do they do for a living uh, how have they played previous hands what do they look like when they're bluffing or when they're strong and i take all these different things and then it, it helps me to like solve the puzzle right so once i have all this information i look at the board and i look at him and i look at the situation i add it all up and i go okay if he's betting here, he has either this hand or this hand, but he doesn't look like he's got it. So he looks like he's bluffing. So then he has this bluff, this hand that's a bluff, the king nine or whatever it is. Right. The hand that would have gotten him this far. And you're, so you're, are you constantly taking in new information? In other words, if I, if you put someone on a hand on the flop and then the turn comes, are you willing to look at that person and say, I was wrong? Yeah. Or I once, because in the old days, Doyle would say, once he put someone on a hand, that's yeah. what he decided they had. 
You know, I like it, as the hand develops. So I start with a, a range of hands, right? So if a player plays from the first position, usually that's a sign of strength, right? Yes. Some people adhere to that, some don't. So let's say I'm up against a player who really does, okay? So now I know, okay, there's a range of hands this player has and there's a range he doesn't have. Now the flop comes out and he's played his hand a certain way. Okay, so let's remove about 30% of those hands and let's get it down to this. Now on the turn, he's made another move. Okay, so now it's down to about three different hands. And on the river, now he's bet this. So it's this, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely this hand. It's, and then do you do a moment of checking? What if I was wrong at the beginning? Do you take, if it's a huge moment, it. will you go through it again? You have to. So it's, it's oh, similar to being a detective, right? Okay. So you look, you know, you're looking at a case of some kind and you're looking at all the clues that you have, right? And then you're trying to figure out based on the clues, like, and then a new clue comes, comes around and you're like, oh, wait a minute, this changes things because this proves that I was wrong about my earlier, pro, you know, the hypothesis about what happened here. Sure. So new evidence is important. And in a poker hand, you know, I might see something, a physical tell, the way they purse their lips. It goes, oh, wait a minute. Whoa, when he does that, he's really strong. And so you'll catch that. So earlier on, even if you're not in a hand with someone, you're watching the table. And you will literally uh, notice that guy uh, or that woman just made a huge bet. He got called. He had it. When he did it, I noticed he squinched his nose. You will clock that. 100%. I actually have in my phone. It's very valuable. In my phone, I have a book essentially on players. And there are specific tells that they have. And I have it in here, these specific notes. So if I see somebody do something that I know that is valuable, I write it down in my notes. You do? Too. Yeah. So that way next time I sit, because sometimes you forget, you know, you might not play with a guy for two years and you go, what was it that, what does it mean when he opens his mouth real wide and says, check? Oh, that means he never has it. Okay. Let me check on my, on my uh. phone. Right. And, uh, and I, and I, when I, when I'm really on, I'm, I'm making like three to five notes a session. You know, on you'll a leave day. the session or you'll do no, it no, at I the do table. It on, yeah, you can do it on my phone. I just yeah, punch I, it I, in. Like I picked this up on somebody yeah. and, I, and you write it down and then you kind of have, then you really have it on them. Yeah. So I'll watch what the person says and, you know, or, or if it, whatever, whatever they're giving away. And then I keep, I keep a log of it. And how much of that do you think is innate for you? How much has it been developed? So, okay, I got that you said in the beginning, we all have some of it. But I've spent a lot of time at poker tables and it's very rare that I pick up a real tell. I have an instinct. Sure. Um, I'm, for an average poker player, I'm very good at um, knowing where I stand relative to the other person. But I don't really know why I think um, something's happening that tells me whether they're strong or weak and whether they're trying. But I can't tell you it's because they move their eyes. Yeah, way. that's the interesting thing. So the subconscious mind, sometimes you're in a hand and you're like, you know, I just think this guy's bluffing. I don't really know why. I don't know what I see because on a conscious level, you can't verbalize it. Right. But subconsciously, your subconscious has seen this movie a thousand times before. So there's something your subconscious is telling you, like there's an alarm going off, going beep, 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 beep. You know, this is so there's something happening here. There's a bluff here and you can't articulate it. Jennifer Harmon, we talked about her earlier. If you asked her about a poker hand, you think, oh my God, how is she a professional? She doesn't know what she's talking about. But if you just watch her in the situation, she makes the right decisions because she's like, yeah, I don't know. I just, right. I feel like he had it. I'm like, yeah, but based on what? Right. Well, I don't know. And I'm like, what do you, you don't know? Well, you're a professional poker player. You're supposed to know this stuff. Yeah. How'd you lay that hand down? And, yeah. But but she was right. Yeah. And in real life, so, okay, I, I get that you say that you, you watch people, you note it. Do you ever feel like uh, you wish you could just turn, you could turn it off? Do you turn it off? Do you, because it, it seems to me that these, right, um, the tells are stronger when people are under pressure. So it seems to me like in pressure situations in various areas of your life, you get a sense of what people are feeling in a way that most of us don't. Sure. Or when they're lying to you, mm -hmm. the extent to which they're yeah. being forthright. How do you deal? How do you use it or not use it in real life? Yeah, I don't see any reason why I would turn that off, right? Because partly what that is, is being able to be empathetic yes. and relate. Well, in a people. relationship with someone, it could be annoying. 
Well, if I was always coming from judgment versus yes. compassion, it would yes. be, right? right yeah. So, but if it's coming from a compassionate place where I want to connect with them better and I'm really empathizing with what they're feeling and how they're feeling, I think that would just make me, you know, more engaged in the relationship, better at it, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sure. probably my biggest struggle is what is you know, what? mentioned, is just going from, you know, looking at these situations and not being judgmental Going from about judgment right. to compassion. Yes. Why is it so, instead of this guy's trying to cheat me <clears throat> um, on the hotel reservation, yeah. going to, uh, why is this guy trying to cheat me? What does he need? If he needs, the his boss is leaning on him, what can I, so you try to make a transition to like, who is the, go back to either the two year old thing or some other trick you have? Yeah, or, as opposed you know, to just if, going, dude, you're lying, why are you trying to fuck me over? Yeah, or if you, you know, you just character traits. If you see somebody's being really arrogant and braggadocious and talking about how great they are or whatever, like, okay, that's, that's usually an easy read for most people. And you know what it comes from? Insecurity, right? This guy's insecure, clearly. I mean, that's almost always the case if somebody's, you know, acting that way. So rather than me go, what an arrogant ass, I, I think to myself, like, well, this guy's just insecure. He just wants to be liked. He just wants a friend. He just wants to be appreciated. So it's, it's easier for me now. To see it that way versus before being like, I hate this guy. Right. You know? All right. I have a couple speed round questions before we finish. Um, how often do you think about winning the main event? And do you feel like in order to be considered the best tournament poker player of your lifetime that you have to win it? No, I don't think I have to win it. I did think so when there was only 200 players that played it. Sure. But now that there's seven, 8,000, it's like, okay, it's a dream just to make the final table. Um, but do you think about it still? I do. I think about it every year during the World Series and especially like leading up because I watch all the Rockies. Every now there's oh, seven, uh, yeah, because Creed is added to the list, right? And they pump me up, man. I don't count five though. I still watch. I won't it. watch the Tommy Morrison it's movie. Rest in bad. peace. It's, it's really a terrible film. One. It's the only one that he met. That I mean, the, yeah, I love the rest of them, and I love the Ryan Coogler movie. I agree with you. Creed's fantastic. Yeah. So you watch those before the World Series? I poker. do. It's I watch. You know, up. I usually take three days and I watch all of them in a row. And uh, it really pumps me up. There's a lot of little life lessons in those movies that really relate to me, especially in my career. Like Rocky Three, Rocky Four. Rocky Three is where, you know, he's getting too much into the TV and this and that. And he's not focused. And there's other people that are working really hard, right? So that reminds me of a time when I was doing that and all these online players were grinding hard. Sure. And then in Rocky Four, you know, this, he's up against science, math, perfection, but he wins with hot, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree. Those movies, I mean, I've watched them all m many times. And, and uh, our character, Bobby Axelrod on Billions, uh, says that he's watched those movies over and over again, mm -hmm. too. Um, what do you think the average person can do to be better at the poker table? What, what, a, what is sort of like, you know, you talk to golfers and they'll tell you, oh, man, in the sand, the average golfer just doesn't understand you have to put your weight on your front foot. They're so scared. They're going to skull it because they're going to lean back to try to lift it up. And of yeah, course, yeah. it's the opposite of what you should do in a sand trap. If only they could learn to hit down and through it. So what are what are we amateur poker players? What's the biggest fuck up that we make? Well, you asked you know, this two-part question. So the first part is like, what can you do to get better? It's so easy now. Like there's a kid named Jason Somerville who's on Twitch like every day. And basically, why not? What's Twitch? Twitch is uh, basically a streaming uh, site where you can like watch people play video games. You can also watch and play poker. So there's nothing better than watching what the pros do and understand, like learning that way. You know, a part of what I do before I study for play for tournaments is I watch a lot of the footage of the, the opponents that I'm playing in these super high roller balls to sort of get some, you know, insight into what they're doing. Kind of like a football. How do you watch them? Do you have someone cut? Put, cut stuff together for you? Or no, you I watch, the, I watch the broadcast and I watch them in pause. And sometimes I'll watch the same thing four or five times in a row. And you will. Slow. Yeah. I'll watch the hand in terms, because sometimes there's like speed tells how quickly somebody bets their chips. But as far as like for amateur players, the number one area you should focus on is not your poker face. Okay. It's not that big a deal, right? Very few people can do what I do. Yeah. Most people just play the game. So the key is learn the fundamentals. 
learn how to play the game properly, right? Define you, that. Define properly. So learn the, you learn the math. Like learn like how, what hands should I be playing? What hands shouldn't I not be playing? And then how should I bet these hands? Should I just be calling or should I be raising? Should I be more aggressive? And there's easy ways to learn how to do that better by watching pros. Yeah, what do you think the best resources are? Well, right now, I think, you know, Jason Somerville is on Twitch regularly. And, you know, you can always watch... You can watch them live or you can watch them, you know, later. Like they, they're up there for like And a he's month. one of the best players in the well, world. Well, he's great because he's entertaining and he speaks to beginners and amateurs in such a way that it's- that And there's a collection it. of his tapes on there. So you yeah, can go like, and watch. There's a difference between, you know, a guy who's like, well, you're UTG plus one. You want to cap your minimum range with it. And I'm like, what language are you speaking? Right. He speaks English, right? Yes. And it's really powerful because- uh, Under the gun is UTG. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I, yeah. I know all the terms. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but so, right. So that's one way that, that you, you can, you can get better. Um, and, and that makes sense too. All right. If you could take parts of you and other players to make the ultimate player, what would it be like? Obviously your ability to put people on a hand, Phil Ivey's aggression. Like what would you, what do you think are the strongest parts that if you could put one super player together? Chip Reese is going to be in that mix because Chip Reese was a – Who uh, died uh, a few years back and was a hero to all, all the poker players. He was Dartmouth considered guy who, you know, he was considered throughout his career the best all-around player. You know, poker is more than just one game of Hold'em. Now, with Chip, he may have never been the best player on his A game versus other people's A game, but his F game was not much different than his A game. Right. So that was the key. For him, he had that emotional stability to always bring it. And to always like, he didn't go like off. Like Tiger Woods in 2000. Sure. Basically. He just didn't go off. Like a lot of people, like maybe a Huck Seed, for example, uh-huh. would play better than him in a lot of cases, but he'd also have an F game that was much worse. So Chip Reese's Huck ability- Seed, who was secretly the biggest inspiration for rounders. Yeah. yeah. So Chip Reese, uh, you know, his, for his temperament, Phil Ivey for his focus, his ability to really just be in the moment and really like, he works harder than everybody else when he's at the table. He, he's a killer. He likes to know, you know, just that intensity and focus from Phil Ivey. Um, and then, you know, you talk about knowledge, you talk about, uh, someone like, I mean, one of these young online geniuses, I could name a bunch of them, but we'll just go with the genre of them and like the deeper understanding of the mathematics in terms of, you know, how, what is the best way to play these And things. who has that deeper understanding? A guy like Phil Galfon, for sure. example. Oh yeah. Vanessa you know? talks about him too. So Phil Galfon would be one that I would mention. And then, um, you know, having the people skills, which is something that I think that I bring to the table in terms of how, what are people going through in their lives? You know, what, how is that going to affect the way they think? What can I do or say to manipulate them into doing what I want? That'd be a pretty good poker player. That would be a hell of a, a poker player. What about uh, Eric Seidel's ability to stay calm? You know, Eric Seidel's, yeah, he definitely has that. You know, he's, it, what Eric does really well is like he sort of just flies under the radar in these things. He doesn't have a flashy game where right. he's like always in your face or loud or brashy. He just always is still there. You know, he just kind of hanging around, yeah. hanging uh, around. Go. Kids got alligator blood. Well, <laughs> all right. If Daniel Legrano's uh, quoting our movie, I think that's a perfect place <laughs> to uh, wrap this up. Uh, and um, yeah, man, listen, thank you for coming and doing this. You know, I've wanted to have this conversation for a long time. I, I, I mean, to me, what you're able to do is just this incredible magic trick. Because uh, hmm. one of the things, if I could... You know, if I could have lived five different lives, I mean, one of those lives would have been to try to really be a poker professional. It's like my uh, other secret uh, secret dream. And so I watched so closely and to see the longevity that you've had and the way that you've improved yourself at the table and away from the table has been really inspiring for me. So thanks, man. Keep keep doing it. it. I appreciate it. And continue not uh, continue not lying. Yeah, I think that's really good. <laughs> All right. Hey, if you want to follow Daniel Grano, you can follow him uh, at Kid Poker. Real Kid Poker. Yeah. Real Kid Poker on Twitter and your website. Yeah. Full Contact Poker. I'm doing my own poker podcast now. I've had three episodes out 
focusing on sort of the business side of poker, like a lot of the history and things like that. What's the, uh, what's that podcast called? Full Contact Poker. And that's on the iTunes store. You can get it on iTunes or you can also, you know, go directly to the website, Full Contact Poker. Great. I'm at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. I normally give out my uh, email at the end of these episodes, but I know that two plus two people are going to want to email me. So I'm going to make you do the work of listening to it. If you really are angry (laughs) enough to email me, then go to the earlier uh, episodes and have to listen to the whole thing at the end. And then that my email address will be there and (laughs) you can write to me. But for my money, Dan Irano, best poker player in the world. All right. Thanks everybody. Bye. See you next time.